Want to take this opportunity and wish a Mazel Tov last night. Daniela Honline and Zvi Moskowitz were married down in Baltimore, Maryland. And among the people in attendance was uh, Daniela's uh, grandfather. Her grandfather is Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. And this morning we say both good morning and Mazel Tov, Mr. Honline. Welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, thank you on both counts. We had an amazing simcha last night in Baltimore, and uh, it's a new landmark. It's my first grandchild to get married, and uh, gives you a lot to think about. It's funny because it's, I was thinking about this this morning in advance of our conversation. You are one who always, thank God, focuses on Jewish continuity, thinks a lot about the Jewish future. It's something that we spoke about in the aftermath of the incredible dinner uh, that the conference had back in October when your uh, children and grandchildren were on stage with you. So last night must have had thousands of thoughts going through your mind. All the time, and it, it really is the essence of Judaism. Human beings are the only species that relates to a third generation. Many animals relate to their children, but none to the third generation, to their grandchildren. Only human beings. And in Judaism, we put tremendous emphasis on it because it symbolizes continuity. And if you don't recognize your responsibility to your grandparents for where you are and your grandchildren for where they will be and how it continues what you believe, the values, the concerns, the Messiah that you hold dear, then you miss the point. This is, this is really the essence of it. And Hirsch said that, that no generation is judged in its time not even by its children, but by its grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Because that's when you see really come to fruition the decisions you make and the actions you take. Wow. Well, like I say, for you, there was a lot to think about last night, and we appreciate you sharing that with us. And a big mazel tov to the Honline and Moskowitz families from all of us at JM in the AM. Malcolm, we have heard this before, and we've discussed it before, but for some reason it seems more serious now that Jonathan Pollard could seriously be included in some type of convoluted prisoner exchange. I don't even know if that's the right word, uh, with Israel, the U.S., the PA, etc. Is it, in fact, more realistic this time around? I don't see any sign that that really is in the cards right now. I, I do believe, and I've said for years on the show, that I think the way he will get released will be as part of a deal because of the opposition that still continues irrationally but continues and uh, but I, I don't know that this is the deal that will do it now from what you know he would be opposed to being included in that type of deal right in principle yes but i think uh, right now anything that could get him out should be uh, pursued and why is this the fourth of the recent prisoner releases that israel has considered and then of course the first three cases carried out why is this one the one that there's so much wrangling over well for several reasons one because the palestinians have done nothing in response to the first three releases except to raise the demands continue to threaten and just pocket everything that israel does it's not as if there is some recognition or some you know, quid pro quo, it's, it's always that Israel gives and the Palestinians take. And I think a lot of people in the cabinet uh, will object to, an, to another release right now, and it's, uh, for a second reason in a minute, but the, the feeling that 
you know, he, that Abbas keeps threatening now to go to the UN, to go on a unilateral uh, mission again to, to get recognition as he did in the past, which I think, you know, is, is uh, uh, an asset that he is wearing out quickly. But the, the second reason is because of the quality of the people involved, meaning negative quality, mm-hmm. that they are people with um, even more blood on their hands. The others had blood on their hands. These guys had even more. Are, uh, we've seen the recidivism of those who were released earlier already, that many have been arrested or been involved, some have been involved again in terrorist activities. And they say that there's some point where, where we have to have some accountability. So I believe if, in fact... The Palestinians agreed to this nine-month extension. And I'm not sure we're going to see a framework agreement. I've said it before. I don't think that they're in a position to put it on paper and and present something. Uh, Netanyahu has actually accepted it and said, look, we'll we'll just express our reservations. Each side will get the document, and each side will express its reservation, as they did with the roadmap, as they did in the past. The Palestinians don't even want to see... To, to be ready to, to do that, to, to accept any kind of framework, and they accused uh, Kerry of being too one-sided, pro-Israel, etc. Is there so, an official release date, by the way, on the table? Like, is there an official date that's already been discussed that this would happen, or the, the extension is yeah, no, would for, be for nine months? But the talks are due in the next week. That's no, the meaning, end of it. Yeah, meaning back to the fourth prisoner release. Is that is there a date on the table for it? Well, or? It's, yes, it's supposed to be now. It's supposed to be by the end of this period. So what do we call it right now? It's basically suspended at this point until things are worked out? I, I don't know that it's formally suspended because the government hasn't said so. It's been reports that have come out, including this morning, uh, that the, the Palestinians are saying that the Israelis are not doing it. The Israelis haven't said it. But as you know, that uh, many people in the cabinet, some have even threatened to resign, but certainly many have objected. Right. So if it does happen, will there be, I know there's always turmoil in the Israeli government, but you know what I mean. If it does happen, will there really be additional turmoil in government? Will people resign? Will there be threats? There certainly will be threats. I think that there will be strong objections. Uh, I don't think it topples the government. Uh, I do think that uh, some people will will certainly grandstand on it and, and express legitimate concerns about wh- what this really means. Aren't you glad that finally there's some there's a voice that's being raised, there's a there, there's a little bit of moxie on the other side, finally, when it comes to opposition for these prisoner releases? Uh, I'm glad that people at least emphasize that this shouldn't be taken for granted. Many people look at this already, you know, after the first group, the second group, the third group, they say, okay, this is routine. This is, uh, you know, Israel. Does, it's not seen as Israel making a significant uh, gesture or or what the true significance of the release of people who have blood on their hands, who killed Jews, who, Israelis, who who killed children. And I think it's important that people understand what what the real context is and what the significance is. That this is not something you just dismiss uh, out of hand. Right. Unfortunately, it, does, it is the common uh, approach to this. Yeah, that's true. Uh, all kidding aside, because there, I mean, there's a lot of kidding going on about the way the United States is handling the Russia-Ukraine situation, but it, it, and, and you know I have no political science background. Obviously, yours is, is what we would consider to be experts, so you can shed some light on this. What is the U.S.'s role right now when it comes to Russia and the Ukraine? It, we discussed last week how there are threats 
their sanctions, it seems, are not being taken seriously, right? Vladimir Putin is not really backing down because of what's coming out of Washington. So right now, how do you classify the U.S.'s role in what Russia's doing? Boy, is that a tough question. (laughs) (laughs) Because to characterize the U.S. role means to analyze and to take it into account within the total context of Americans' approach to foreign policy and um, and also the Europeans. But the Europeans keep saying they're looking to American leadership. What were the options is one question you have to ask. Were we really prepared for a military confrontation over the Crimea? Should we have sent ships into the Black Sea? Could we have backed him off from formalizing this? I think on the latter part, yes. The The decision to allow this to stand, the decision to allow Georgia, the two segments of Abkhazia, uh, and uh, to, to be held by uh, Russia. The decision in Syria all feed the perception and all feed the bolstering of the uh, belief by people like China in the Red Sea, like North, in, the, in the Chinese Sea, the North Koreans to fire missiles, because they perceive that the West's response is going to be weak. The in, initial response of those 11 people being sanctioned was laughed off. Right. Many of them didn't have even have business here. Others do. It is not because these sanctions are not going to hurt Russia. And it's not Russia is not a great power today anymore. Its military is significant, and, and, but the willingness on, on part of Putin to challenge and the backing off of everybody, which certainly brings up historical precedents and antecedents that people raise all the time. So it's the question of perception. It's not even a question of... of of what we are thinking or what we say. It's how they perceive it. And the message today is that they perceive it as weakness. And we, people are looking now, will he move into Moldova? Will he move into eastern Ukraine? The very thought that this could be, these possibilities could be raised means that people understand that our response is encouraging people to be adventurers. Yeah, you had emphasized this last week, and it certainly bears repeating. And now this week, and you know, again, certain folks, including myself, have trouble keeping track of all the meetings and groups. Russia was disinvited to what this week, where the President of the United States was addressing? Well, the, the, the Russians, there's a number of levels of, of things that are taking place. These disinvitations are not significant. Even the G8, it, that is more significant. But Russia doesn't care, essentially? But Russia, to to agree, Putin believes that, you know, they'll make these gestures. It it is not directly impacting uh, them. And for him, these these things are more important. He has now reasserted himself at home. He has gotten the Russian people who are suffering terribly uh, under the current economic conditions. Everybody is focused today on what what Russia is doing, and it's at a a significant cost. But he has clear ideas of what he wants to do. He, I, and I think several years ago we already talked about the fact that Russia, that Putin has designs to reestablish the former Soviet Union, right. the, or at least uh, establish uh, the sphere of influence again. And, and how did we know? Because the leaders of these countries were telling us this years ago. This is not something that just happened, ha- happened today. I mean, it's the same thing with Iran, which we'll talk about in a minute, but you see how the Saudis put down these markers because they see the same parallel situation happening there. Right. So so just bear with me for a second. So when I'm sitting at home watching the news and I hear that Russia's tossed out of a G8 meeting, in Moscow they really don't care? 
To us, it sounds so dramatic. It sounds <laughs> exactly, and and their admission to the G8, which wasn't that long ago, it was before the G7, um, was seen as significant. It meant that their economy was being recognized, and they were putting into, put into this uh, grouping, and so their removal has symbolic significance, but. It is, it is not the kind of action that is going to shake up the situation and, and put down the markers as much as, it, as some sort of an action that really hits home and means they have to sanction a lot more than the people who have been till today right. and much tougher sanctions against the government. And, and I think that many of the countries in Europe are unwilling to do it. Why aren't we sanctioning them for sell, selling arms today right. to Iran, mm-hmm. to Syria? To supplying, you know, weapons and including nuclear reactors. Right, and you explained to us there would be no EU support for that. I mean, that that could be a factor, right? Well, there would be some EU support, but you know, they too, they all say, well, well we're looking right. for leadership from the United States. And this this military buildup on the border with the Ukraine—that's simply because they wouldn't be able to hold on to Crimea without all those troops in there. They had controlled Crimea before because they had the troops there. Even without the buildup, or there was one at that point. Well, they always had, the Russians always had a huge number, had a control of their bases, their, their naval bases were there, they had a large number of troops. I did not realize that the Ukraine pulled out 25,000 troops at the end, uh, which means that they had, that's a significant a number based in the Crimea, mm-hmm. uh, and more than 300 bases. Uh, which I don't understand, but it just looks far from Russia when you look at the map. <laughs> yeah, but it is, uh, you know, Odessa certainly and places like that that people know help bring it closer, make people realize the connection, right. and you know the the overwhelming number of people there who have Russian cultural identities or linguistic, uh, they use the Russian language or social associations. Uh, Malcolm Holmline is with us, and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, and around the world on the web, jmnam.org. So Bin Laden's son-in-law is uh, convicted this week, right? Right. I mean, it's 13 years later. This was a 9-11 crime, correct? Right, and post-9-11 and his associations with the... Terrorism. If I would have told you 13 years ago this would have taken 13 years, you probably wouldn't have believed that, right? That's that's for sure. It's amazing to me. And um, in Egypt we see that 529 members of the Muslim Brotherhood were sentenced to death. Right. Now, these are people who were among or associated with Egyptian leadership a year or so ago. With Morsi. Yeah. Yes. And... They will not carry out these executions. Ah, that's what I want, because I, I was thinking that that, that, that that could be a real game changer. Just... It is a game changer, and now there they are altogether, I think, 919 people, they are, but they are, their convictions are being reviewed or their sentences are being reviewed. My bet would be that uh, you will not see, uh, there are, have been executions, by the way, in, in Egypt, but nothing on the scale of, for instance, I- I- Iran. Uh, and other countries in the Middle East today, but the I think the Egyptian uh, government will the new government and there will be an election. Yeah, when is that? What month? The election is due, I think, in June. And LCC will win it or not? Oh yes, absolutely. So that's it. So we know we already know the future of Egypt politically. We know the future of Egypt politically, but the question is, will they handle it intelligently? Will they doing things like this is not intelligent to sentence 500 people to death? because you just rouse the international community's 
concerns. Well, wait, I mean, are, are there Muslim Brotherhood um, protests and rallies and and, and uh, you know bedlam going on in certain cities in Egypt? I would I would think there have to be after a decision like that. There no? have been, but don't forget they have really crushed the and and, and isolated the Muslim Brotherhood. There have been demonstrations, but not just by by uh, Muslim Brotherhood by others against it, but the uh, the um, you know, the, in, in Egypt today, it's not the Muslim Brotherhood is much more hesitant to to make its voice heard. Right. Um, an emailer points this out, and I mentioned it to you last week, but I ask you again um, uh, on, on the issue. Just back for a second to the prisoner release. The United Nations would step in or would not when it comes to this issue of pressuring Israel for this uh, last prisoner release. No, this is not a, a UN matter. Could they, they, the Palestinians go to the Security Council? would not be over the release. It would be to gain recognition and, and more likely go to General Assembly and to specialized agencies. But the agencies are very reluctant because it means the cutoff of U.S. funding. And, and the Palestinians also could face a cutoff of U.S. funding at a time when they obviously need it. So this is, uh, it's not cost-free for them to move ahead in this way. So it's not just a humanitarian protest there's money involved <laughs> they they know that they there there has to that what is it they need they need they need both sides to comply and reach an agreement to get all the money that they're owed to get the the money that's due to them to the palestinians yeah well it's not due to them it's money that we allocate as a gift to them based on uh, you know uh, grants and aid from europe and from the united states ours goes to projects theirs goes to to whatever but certainly most of it ends up in Abbas's family's pocket. Right, but it, but and they wouldn't get it if, I'm, I'm missing the point regarding the release, they wouldn't get it if what? They wouldn't get... The money, the, the great... If, if Abbas walks off from the talk, ah, so, uh-huh. he, he, American aid will, will certainly be negative. Members of Congress, so I think, are chomping at the bit to, to send a message. Right. So he's so, got and some... Look, and he's, he's still refusing now not only on the right of return and not only on the declaration of Jewish state, but also to say that it's an end of conflict, which is so fundamental. So many members of Congress are saying, look at this, he's moving exactly in the wrong direction. And we see the in the West Bank and the camps there in the in Shomron, some of the, the increase, the security needs and the, the uh, growth of, of Hamas influence. And, uh, you know, Israel, tr- Israeli troops have been going in almost every night and arresting uh, wanted Hamas guys, which... Of course, the PA loves that Israel does the dirty work for them, but they're not doing it. And the the um, you know we're seeing more rejectionism on their part from uh, on many fronts. Why are many in Israel so glad that Richard Falk is leaving the United Nations? Yeah, but unfortunately, he's still he's still going to be functioning. And the person who's named to to replace him. Is no Matia Christine Chinkin is one of the co-authors of the Goldstone Report. Oh, really? Oh my yeah, gosh. So, so we're going, you know, from but Falk is uniquely evil and uh, anti-Semitic, I would say, by most accounts. And and that's a term you don't generally throw around. Oh no, he is really a vicious guy. His, his anti-Israelism goes to such an extreme that I think many would would accuse him of, of crossing that line. And he, he is very he's profoundly proud of, of his uh, of his positions and his hostility. Right. And if someone who helped author the Goldstone report is taking over, I think you'd be able to say as well from the tone of we that report. Reflect more of the same. Right. And that they, that the they're also very proud. Supposed to be a neutral 
observer, but Falk, uh, you saw that Samantha Power, the American ambassador to the U.N., talked about him in the most uh, extreme terms that I ever certainly recall in many years. Oh, I saw statements from Israel. I didn't even see statements from the U.S. on that. Oh, no, she was amazing and said that, uh, you know, dismissed his, his uh, leaving and said that it was sort of good riddance to bad rubbish uh, uh, line. Wow. Uh, did I read or not that Erdogan is visiting Israel? Erdogan is not visiting Israel. He's not visiting so There know. is talk that within the next few weeks we will see, but we again, we've seen this many times, but in the next few weeks we will see the signing of some sort of uh, Israeli-Turkish agreement again. What is that, like a trade agreement? Well, it would certainly try to put things back on a keel. The trade has been going on unabated all this time, and there's, you know, in fact has increased steadily. And there's also now this Turkish-Israel uh, gas pipeline. Some ten companies have already bid on it, and for Turkey this is very critical. So maybe the the uh, economic uh, realities will trump his political extremism and get them to come back to, to some sort of a cold peace with Israel. What do you think of uh, the report this week that yet another prominent member of Israeli government might be involved in a scandal? Getting tiring, frankly, and uh, and we'll have a government of ex- in exile inside the <laughs> prisons. But the you know people love to hear these reports and to get into the details, which are often really disturbing. But this is a former prime minister, uh, somebody who's still very active. Uh, I think the impact on on the people they dealt with, the impact on on Israel's image along with this strike of the foreign ministry, is, uh, you know, these things really do hurt. Yeah, I, I th- People have to realize. You didn't mean to say former prime minister, did you? He is a former prime minister. Meaning Olmert? Yes. Oh, I was I, I was referring to the Sylvain Shalom rumors. That, no, but that, that, that so far, I think that's been dismissed, and there's been no evidence to corroborate the charge. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, but Olmert's charges right. are very serious, and now that his former assistant turned state's evidence, and even supposedly has tapes, I think it's in a new phase. Right, and I'm always curious if the Israeli people care about this, but I guess the media is going to keep it alive there. No, they care. I think they do care, ultimately. You know, again, it's uh, you know it's tabloid headlines that everybody loves to see, but the, uh, the impact on Israel's image is, is real in a time when the legitimization campaign goes on. You know, so the vote at University of Michigan, 25 to 9, they, they defeated a resolution on divestment, but in Loyola College in Chicago, they passed it. These are students, not the universities will not implement them, et cetera. But, you know, at a time when Israel is under siege and its image, we need all the diplomats working, and, and we got Israelis got to think about how what may be seen as an internal issue really plays today. There's nothing internal how it plays on the international scene. Right, there's nothing And they've internal. had good news, you know, the Israeli unemployment went down to 4.9% in February, which is a record low. I mean, it's unbelievable. And, uh, and you know, those stories get shunted aside because everybody's focusing on all these scandals. You mentioned the universities a moment ago. If I, if, if I could ask, uh, I, I would assume, and you tell me I'm wrong and I hope I'm wrong, I would assume you don't hear enough from campus representatives around the country, because there are so many that seem to be isolated and alone, and obviously the Jewish population on some campuses is, you know, close to nothing in certain areas of the country. And uh, 
and and they uh, they they are left to fight the battle themselves. But you don't hear enough from uh, student leaders around the country on these issues, right? You're raising some very important points. One is that we, we, we hear from the major campuses when we had the problems at the University of Michigan, when we had problems in continuing problems at UCLA, including some assaults on students and harassment of pro-Israel students at, uh, at uh, different universities. So those we tend to get the reports about them when we have a strong Jewish presence. But there are many places, and increasingly Jewish students seem to be intimidated. They don't have the confidence both based on their own knowledge and to stand up and defend themselves, and because of the climate of hostility that develops and has developed. So this is why for all these years we've been pushing people to pay attention to the BDS movement, to the global delegitimization movement, because it really does take hold. It's much bigger in Europe. But we're seeing those tentacles now extending to the United States. We're on our campuses and in other sectors. People and the people who talk about boycotts, people talk about divestment campaigns, you know, uh, they're getting defeated in most places, and where we know about it, we can react. And we have the Lawfare Project that is, provides legal assistance to students right. who are facing these kind of problems. But most people aren't aware of it. But if they would ask the children or grandchildren, those who have kids studying in colleges around the country, find out what's really happening. Uh, and when you speak about assaults, we could also mention the physical assaults. You've seen, I'm sure, some of the pictures of uh, the, one of the assaults in France against a, a Jewish person. It seems like there's pages of articles about different attacks that are going on. I mean, do, do French police and officials uh, take these seriously? We know what would happen here in the U.S. if there was a quote-unquote hate crime. What happens there in a country like France? Well, remember Halimi, uh, the young boy who was tortured to death. And right. So it's, this is not just uh, minor incidents. The, the attack against this teacher who was walking with a yarmulke in the streets of Paris he was slammed against the wall. He was beaten with a brick in the face. His teeth and uh, nose was broken, etc. Um, these are very serious. But the fact is that in most of Paris and in, in, in many other places, you can't walk with a yarmulke in Berlin. The chief rabbis warn about people not walking with any visible Jewish symbol. I mean, it, it is unacceptable. That that should not be the response to it. I, I agree that that is the right thing to do, but it's, it shouldn't be the appropriate response. That, that that 70 years after the Shoah, we're, we're back to these circumstances where Israel gets labeled and Israel as the corporate Jew, but now you see it against individual Jews, which is exactly what we said all this time uh, would be happening. But when it comes to this area, in terms of the comparison of the U.S. and France, for instance, the standards there are nowhere near ours, right? They're, they're, e- e- even the... Uh I mean, I, I know the attitude is certainly different, but even the official laws on the books are not like they are here in this country, correct? Well, actually, they're stronger. Are they stronger? Because they have libel laws. We don't have the same kind of laws that, that exist in, in most countries. For instance, uh, you can't produce Holocaust literature. Much of the Holocaust literature in those countries comes from the United States, from Nebraska and places like that. Uh, now, unfortunately, they're, they're becoming more uh, local, but you saw even in Brooklyn... These kids who, who made a uh, semi-swastika or something and painted them all over Brooklyn mm-hmm. and uh, said, well, it's a new symbol, it's unity, it's this, it's that, until they, the press started pressing them. And, of course, they understood what the significance and they wanted to shock or they wanted to do anything. But there's no. They, when, when in France you have the comedian Dugien came up with the canal that, and sports figures and others were making these uh, revised Nazi salutes, and people can't dismiss it. Each of these things are important because it keeps lowering the level. It erodes the resistance to these things. And they can say, well, 
and, and a leader of the French Jewish community at first said, well, it's not so significant, you know, the canal. And then they saw what was happening. He had to come out and reverse his position. And the, you know, we have many manifestations. If Jimmy Carter could come out against the BDS movement, and he said the boycott goes too far. He said, you know, they should label West Bank products and people can decide. <laughs> but even Jimmy Carter has come out recognizing that this is a, a very bad thing and the implications could be very serious. What did you think when you heard the President of the United States allude to uh, a nuclear bomb going off in New York? Yeah, there are people who are saying that this makes New York a good target, but New York is always a target. And uh, I mean, people, you know, I some people called it an ir- the nuclear threat. Uh, Some people called it an irresponsible statement. Would you classify it that way? I, I know that there are many who have said it, and people talk about it. But you, you know, leaders have to be careful because the words—certainly the words of the president of the United States—carry tremendous weight, and uh, you have to be very careful what you say and, and how you say it. And someone pointed out something yesterday that's a little far-fetched, but. You know, you, you mentioned the uh, the precarious situation. You know, sometimes it doesn't seem that way, the way we're living in the lap of luxury, but the precarious situation for Jews in France and other areas, and like you just mentioned, even in Brooklyn, New York, there's certain attacks that take place. And again, I know we've been going back to the story of Purim a lot, but if we learned anything, it's that stuff changes very, very quickly. And that was not in a technological era where stuff really changes very, very quickly. So to, to stand on guard or be on guard is uh, are, are words that are more meaningful today than ever before. Right. And, and, and read this stuff from the trial that you mentioned before of, uh, of the people, the Muhammad Yusuf and, and these others. You know, but his, his real name is uh, uh, Jose Pinamente. So that should also warn us. But the, <laughs> the, um, uh, the extent of these activities and the you know what we saw with the ASA, the American Studies Association, is being replicated with many other groups that are introducing these resolutions. And each year, it has an erosionary effect on the opposition to it. And the fact that on students on campuses, and 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 we're facing another set of it's it's which is, I believe is directly related, which is something we've talked about, and I've tried to get governments for the last two years to pay attention, and that is the thousands and thousands of guys who are fighting today in Syria who carry European and American passports who are going to come home. You know, MI5, which is the British Security Services, half of their investigations today, fully half, have to do with Brits who travel to Syria to fight. And they've already had an attack that they prevented, and there have been a number of arrests uh, of those connected to this who have been involved in recruiting and involved in actual fighting. But you're, you're going to have thousands and thousands of people coming back. And these are not going to be any more hypothetical dangers. These are guys who killed, yeah. who've been fighting there. And they're coming back to all of our countries. Finally, Malcolm, we opened up with the Ukraine and the G8 and uh, the drama of Russia being thrown out of the meeting and all this other stuff. Uh, plus, of course, so many eyes around the world, rightfully so, are concerned about the Malaysian jet, which is still missing, and we talk about the attention that the Ukraine and other areas are getting. While, while all this is happening, you know that Iran continues to do whatever they want to do. And it's, this is not only a comment about the perception of the U.S. and, and possibly its lack of leadership or uh, a lack of nerve when it comes to the international scene right now, but it's also just a practical issue that there's a lot of a lot of things going on out there, as you always point out to us. Is there an update this week regarding Iran and its activities? I will tell you what what is very instructive um, about this. Look at what 
the Saudis are saying, how the president you know, is visiting Saudi Arabia, getting a very cold visit, I think. But look at the arguments that, um, that are going to place. Look, the Saudi relationship with the United States is too important to both sides. So while it can be under tremendous threat, but what, what is really undermining it is that the, the failure, as perceived by the Saudis, to stand up to Iran, which they see as moving to encircle them. And what does it mean? The, the, the Al-Quds forces and the IRGC active in Bahrain, in Iraq, where they're trying to dominate, and increasingly we're seeing Sunni reaction to the fact that, that Iran is taking over the government there. Syria, where Iran is not only involved as the main supplier, etc., Lebanon, Yemen, and in their own eastern province, in, in, uh, where in the uh, Shatib, where, where the main oil supplies are, and we have a large uh, Shiite population. So they're seeing this whole Iranian effort encircling them, but it's not, but also to shift the whole balance to create the Shiite crescent to, to dominate and to isolate the others, to force their agenda uh, uh, on, on others, and to, to specifically undermine Saudi Arabia, the Gulf. Uh, Bahrain because of the wealth and what uh, they can get out of it and the failure to see that the West stand up to them and what they see, you know, the, the Egyptian military government is coming under such uh, pressure and that the feeling is that the West ignores them and, and puts more pressure on them. The Saudis are funding this uh, Egyptian purchase from, from Russia of the weapons because it's a frustration in saying look, the United States is walking away we stopped the sale of some helicopters which they need in the battle in the Sinai, and and all of these things have a cumulative effect. And uh, you know, I mean, this is not to exculpate Saudi Arabia, which you know refused to allow uh, a Jerusalem Post reporter, an American citizen, to come with the president. Huh. I thought the reaction afterwards was strong by the president, by the administration, but too weak. They should not have gone. They should have said, if he can't come, we're not coming. And. You know, they did issue a statement saying it's abhorrent and they, they don't agree, and the, but also saying he doesn't hold Israeli citizenship and never lived in the Jewish state. So what? That's not the reason why, he should, why they should have objected is whether he, if he held, as long as he's an American citizen who was supposed to go with the president, and you, the thing you just put the marker down and say you let him in or we're leaving. It was just a convenient excuse, that's all. And the, the, you know, these kind of things can't be allowed to go unchallenged. By the way, they're changing the time in Israel for those who have relevant. No, 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 no. They changed it last night. night. Yeah. So people. You said changing. Oh, I I meant changing. But they already changed. Well, the process, you know, until everybody gets to their watches, (laughs) they're still changing. Yeah, we're back to a seven hour difference between the Eastern time zone and the. People should know if they call Mishmachus before Shabbos to know that it's seven hours difference this time. Boy, you cover all the bases, don't you? You're even concerned about those who are placing phone calls today. Well, I applies to me in doing business there, but... Uh, like, sounds like you're anxious to get off this call to start making your Israel calls. That's what it sounds not like Not anxious me. at all. <laughs> By the way, you saw that the Christians, there was a Christian rally in Israel, got no coverage, but against the EU silence on, the, on, on what's happening to Christians in the Middle East. And it's a couple hundred people gathered. They went in front of the EU delegation in Tel Aviv. They thanked Israel for the treatment that they get and for the hospitality that is shown to, to Christians there yep. and the rights that they enjoy, you know, which you know for sure is not going to well. uh, change. By the way, another interesting symbol this week, 
that many of the stores in Damascus, which have been flying a banner which was pre-Assad, have now painted their gates with the Syrian flag. That tells you where, what direction things are taking, uh, what direction things are moving there. And yet he doesn't leave the office. <laughs> <laughs> well, he leaves, but nobody knows when or where. I'm not sure he knows when and where. But the, uh, but I, I thought that was, you know, you have to look at these things to get a sense of how the people perceive the shift that's taking place now. Who's winning? Hey, Malcolm, uh, too many uh, Jewish news outlets ignored a great celebration this past Sunday, so join me in wishing a mazel tov to the record number of musmachim up at Yeshiva University uh, who graduated Reitz officially this past Sunday. We wish them a mazel tov. It's, it's really quite amazing why you, you people can have differences with it, but nobody can deny the important role it has played, and it produces more rabbis than all the other institutions put together, and the other streams and the other institutions. And, you know, when it comes to something, if there's a negative report about their credit rating or something, the media is all over it. When it comes to telling the truth about what an immense contribution they make, they don't. Right. And Richard Joel and others who are the board, they, they try so hard. They're trying to rectify the situation and they should get the support because the role that, that YU plays is really critical. There's no other institution We'll replace it. And you see the, if you go there and you see what's happening there, it's so impressive. I, I spoke for, for a class, an honors class there, of the people of the Smicha program. And really such quality and such devotion and such really serious students was very impressive. Boy, am I glad I brought it up. Mazal tov again to Daniela and Svi. Enjoy Shabbos Shevar Brachas. We will, and thank you, and thank everybody for the good wishes. And we want them all. We need them. We need to have many more Simchos in the Jewish people. Amen. we got to learn how to celebrate, as you always remind us. Mazal tov to the Honline and Moskowitz families. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. We call it the weekly update on Friday mornings here at JM in the AM.